You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A $70,000 deduction for haircuts, $26 million in consulting fee write-offs, a family estate that generated a $21 million charitable deduction, and an IRS challenge to a $72 million refund claim. Those are just some of the revelations from a New York Times analysis of President Trump's tax returns. But at the first presidential debate, Trump denied the Times report that he only paid $750 in federal income taxes in both 2016 and 2017. Is it true that you paid $750 in federal income taxes each of those two years? I paid millions of dollars in taxes, millions of dollars of income tax. However, in a seemingly contradictory explanation, Trump then spelled out how he has exploited depreciation, tax credits, and other provisions of the tax code to reduce his personal tax bill. It was the tax laws. I don't want to pay tax. Before I came here, I was a private developer. I was a private business people. Like every other private person, unless they're stupid, they go through the laws, and that's what it is. My guest is Michael Gratz, a professor at Columbia Law School. He's the author of the new book, The Wolf at the Door, The Menace of Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It. Can we tell whether President Trump is a billionaire from the information in the New York Times? Well, I think it's very hard to know what his assets are from the tax return information we've been given. You know, it's often very hard to tell what someone's worth is from an income tax return. And in his case, it's even more difficult because there are so many losses that have been claimed. And it's not clear whether these are real economic losses or or whether they're just tax deductions and losses. During the debate, Trump said that as a private real estate developer, he took advantage of what he called privileges. Explain those for us. Well, real estate developers have a number of advantages in the tax law. They get to take deductions even when someone else has financed the real estate. And so a lot of the deductions and losses that Donald Trump seems to be claiming are financed through borrowing, and the law permits that. Although I have to say there are a number of issues that were raised by the New York Times that seem to me to be quite questionable and go well beyond the normal issues involving real estate. Are you referring to his personal expenses that were written off as business deductions? There are a number of issues about whether deductions he's taking for business are really business deductions or whether they're non-deductible personal expenses. There's a long list of those. They include the haircuts, which are typically not allowable if you're a soldier and you have to get your haircut every two weeks. You don't get to deduct your haircuts. There are cases on this, and there's a case involving an entertainer. But there are also issues involving what he's treating as business and what he's treating as personal with the Seven Springs estate, which seems to be a family retreat, according at least to other family members. The allocation of expenses in Mar-a-Lago, which he's claiming are business, but it's also his personal residence, uh, raise questions. And there are others. And Seven Springs generated a $21.1 million charitable deduction for Trump because, as you say, he treated it as an investment property. Well, as I understand it, most of his charitable deductions, almost all of his charitable deductions, were conservation easements that were allowed on his real estate holdings, including Seven Springs. 
And conservation easements have been identified by the IRS as one of the most abusive types of charitable donations. What you're doing is you're promising either access. I know that from earlier reports, he seems to have allowed people to walk around, not on, but around the golf courses and taken deductions for that. You know, he obviously has some conservation easement involving Seven Springs, although we don't know what it is. It may be, you know, to keep a bird habitat or to clean water on the property, things that he might do anyway. And there's always a question about the valuation of these easements. The value is supposed to be the loss in the value of the property. That is, you compare the value of the property without the easement and the value of the property with the easement, and you get a deduction for the difference. But it's quite common for high-income people who have real estate and want to uh, get a charitable deduction to overvalue their conservation easements. This is something the IRS has long identified as often abusive. And of course, we don't have enough information to know, but it's pretty clear that Donald Trump has been quite aggressive in trying to reduce his taxes and virtually all of his charitable deductions, probably all other than the ones he gave to the Trump Foundation, seem to be conservation easements. The Times reports about $750,000 in consulting fee write-offs to his daughter, Ivanka Trump. So what about putting his daughter on the payroll and then writing off consulting fees? That's another red flag, I think, for tax auditors. She was, as I understand it, an employee of the Trump Organization. But nevertheless, there is an additional payment to her other than her salary as a consultant. You know, you're allowed to deduct payments for services rendered, even if they're rendered by a family member, but those services have to be at fair value, fair arm's length value, what you would pay to somebody who's not a family member. And it may be a way to transfer property to his daughter, free of estate tax or gift tax, um, and to get a a tax deduction. Uh, It would be interesting to know whether, uh, you know, what her, what her income tax returns show uh, with regard to this and her employment tax returns or self-employment tax returns. We just don't know, but it certainly raises red flags. Red flags for the IRS, but are any of these deductions or the way he is using the tax code, are criminal penalties possible in any of those cases? I mean, criminal cases are very fact-intensive proceedings. Uh, You have to prove that the person knew what the tax law was and willfully didn't follow it. Now, you know, if he's got a a home, a family retreat, and he's treating it as if it's some business and there's no income associated with it, it certainly raises questions about whether what his intent was and what he knew about what he was doing. but uh, some of it is, is probably uh, not criminal. It's, it's just uh, aggressive. And if the IRS is uh, auditing uh, his returns as, as they should be, um, some of these deductions uh, will almost certainly be disallowed. The My accountant did it defense. Does that defense work in these cases? You know, as I say, it, it, it's not a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's, uh, it depends on what the taxpayer knew and, and whether the taxpayer 
intentionally violated uh, the law. And, you know, it's very hard to prove, uh, especially if you have a letter or advice uh, from an accountant or an attorney who, who knows all the facts. Um, it's very hard to, to uh, bring a criminal case in those circumstances. It's almost always inappropriate. But, but a lot of times, criminal tax cases uh, turn on um, situations where the client knew facts and didn't quite tell the accountant or the lawyer all of the facts uh, as they were. And, you know, we just don't know enough to know anything about what was going on between Donald Trump and his accountants and and lawyers. The IRS is challenging a $72.9 million refund that Trump claimed a decade ago. First of all, why would it take 10 years to come to a resolution of this? Well, the the facts may be complicated. Um, I I suspect um, that this, I mean, at least based on the news reports, this seems to be uh, the abandonment, uh, a loss attributable to the abandonment of a casino in Atlantic City. Um, If you abandon the property and you get nothing in return, uh, then uh, that may be deductible, that loss. Uh, but if you uh, do get something of value in return, or you, you keep something of value, um, and here there are at least suggestions that he may have had stock that was retained uh, in the company, uh, then you're not entitled to that loss. And so there may be there may be complicated facts. There may also be issues of uh, the cancellation of of debt on that property. Uh, as I understand it, he had very large debts that were never paid back on that property. And usually, if you cancel a debt, that's taxable income to you. Um, we've seen uh, many families uh, suffer taxes when their house is foreclosed, and students who are unable to pay their loans. Um, but are not bankrupt tend to uh, tend to have to pay taxes when that debt is is forgiven, and so I, I'm guessing it's just a guess, but I'm guessing that there are issues about whether there was a true abandonment and issues about the treatment of the debt, uh, whether he's taking a loss uh, for uh, the lenders. The lender suffered a loss. And whether Trump is taking a tax loss uh, that really properly belongs to the lender uh, may be an issue. Uh, so uh, this may be a complicated uh, set of issues. We don't know enough about it uh, to opine. But tax audits often take a long time. And as we've seen, uh, Donald Trump uh, is perfectly willing, um, as we've seen with the subpoena case over his tax records, he's perfectly willing to go into court and, and delay uh, and, and probably an administrative procedure for the IRS, make it very difficult for the IRS to, to get all the facts. And, uh, um, you know, so, so it's, it's not shocking that it's taken this long. I suspect that when he became president of the United States, uh, that slowed this audit down. 
and that's been nearly four years now. So um, it was pending. It was obviously pending when he became president. So, and I'd be surprised if the IRS wants to levy a large tax on their boss at the moment. What stood out to you most or what shocked you most, if anything? If the Times story is accurate, and it, and it seems quite likely to be accurate, they seem to have the information they claim to have, there is evidence of an unusually aggressive set of tax positions that have been taken, particularly on, on the line between what's business and what's personal, whether it's the payment to Ivanka, Seven Springs, Mar-a-Lago, or haircuts, uh, all of those fit into that category. Um, conservation easements that we've talked about are also in in that category. Um, and so, um, it, you know, it, it seems to be a person um, who, perhaps not surprisingly, is exceptionally aggressive in his uh, tax uh, reporting. Uh, it looks to me like he treats his tax returns as an opening bid, um, and uh, the IRS then has to come challenge uh, anything that is at all dubious um, or suspect in those returns. And uh, not everyone who, who files a tax return uh, behaves that way. Many people, including many wealthy people, uh, try and figure out what they owe the government, um, pay their taxes, and, uh, and and do not relish the prospect of a, an IRS audit. I guess the other thing that we haven't talked about that worried me just as a citizen is uh, that there uh, seem to be large uh, payments on his taxes and relationships with both the Philippine and the Turkish governments. And given the behavior that Trump has exhibited uh, toward those two countries and their strong men leaders, um, brutal leaders in some cases, uh, one does have to wonder whether those financial relationships are having uh, some undue influence on the foreign policy of the United States, whether it's in Syria or whether it has to do with human rights abuses in the Philippines. That's Michael Gratz of Columbia Law School. His new book, The Wolf at the Door, The Menace of Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It. After an unusual Sunday morning hearing, a federal judge has temporarily blocked President Trump's ban on TikTok, dealing a blow to the government in its showdown with the popular Chinese-owned app that it says threatens national security. Joining me is Jim Dempsey, Executive Director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Start by explaining what the ban by Trump would have done if the judge hadn't blocked it. So it was a two-phase uh, ban uh, by the president directed against uh, TikTok. The uh, first half of it, uh, which was due to be effective uh, yesterday, Sunday, uh, September 27th, would have basically prohibited any uh, downloads, any new downloads of the TikTok app or any updates to already uh, downloaded versions of the app. So it would have knocked uh, TikTok off of the app stores of uh, Google and uh, Apple. The second half of the order 
intended to be effective November 12th would have basically uh, effectively ended the, the functioning of the existing downloads by prohibiting any uh, internet hosting or any provision of uh, content delivery network CDN uh, services, which are basically essential to enable the functioning of any of any mobile app. So two phases. One, no new downloads, supposed to be taking effect last night, blocked by the judge. Further restrictions, November 12, left untouched so far by the judge. What were the arguments to the judge of TikTok and the Trump administration? Well, TikTok raised a variety of arguments, um, starting with the fact that the statute relied upon by President Trump, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, or IEPA, that statute gives the president very broad powers to block any kind of transaction involving any foreign person or any foreign entity or any foreign government. But it has an exception that says uh, nothing in the act grants the president any power to directly or indirectly prohibit any personal communication. Um, It goes on to say no power to regulate or prohibit directly or indirectly any um, importation or exportation of informational material. Um, So the TikTok argued the president is indirectly banning people from personal communication via TikTok. TikTok also made uh, arguments uh, around um, First Amendment, uh, and it made arguments around uh, due process, arguing that the uh, president's order and Commerce Department uh, implementing uh, prohibitions were not properly issued, that TikTok had not had an opportunity to respond, that this was basically a violation of uh, TikTok's due process. As of this moment, we don't actually know which of those arguments the judge accepted. Um, the judge is considering um, demands or arguments by either side as to whether he should or should not uh, disclose the uh, details of his reasoning. That may be decided even as we speak. But um, it was First Amendment. It was the underlying statute doesn't even prohibit you from regulating communications. And uh, this was hasty and ill-founded, and therefore a violation of um, due process. What was the the Trump administration's argument? Well, right on down the line, they they tried to rebut the um, TikTok's argument. Uh, they said, "No, no, we're not banning a uh, personal communication. We're only banning the business relationships here. We're not." regulating any individual TikTok user. We're just uh, regulating the Apple uh, and um, Google app stores. So it's not personal, it's just business. Uh, The problem with that was the statute says you cannot regulate or prohibit indirectly even any personal communications. Jim, is TikTok or is ByteDance fighting Trump's order that it sell the business? Interestingly enough, that's a separate fight, which is yet to be fully engaged. We actually have two 
parallel process underway with respect to TikTok. One terms of this IEPA order to ban transactions, meaning to ban the app stores from doing business with TikTok and to ban the content delivery networks and any payment processors from doing any business with TikTok. Separate, but we're clearly related, separate from that is the effort to force the sale, which arises under a completely different statute, the Defense Production Act. You may have heard of the so-called CFIUS process, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And to talk about extraordinary powers, the statute related to the CFIUS process allows the government to demand the unwinding of an already completed purchase or acquisition or investment. In this case, the 2017, I think it was, purchase of Musical.ly, by the way, a Chinese company, by ByteDance, by the way, another Chinese company. So you have this extraordinary situation where the government is claiming the power to force one Chinese company to divest itself of another Chinese company, do it retroactively, based on the fact that the parent company, ByteDance, is doing business in the United States. So it doesn't have to be headquartered here. It doesn't have to be incorporated here. But because it is doing business in the United States, the government claims the power to control its activities in the United States. And that process is still underway. So far, interestingly, TikTok has not challenged that order. In fact, it cited its ongoing dialogue uh, with the government or prior negotiations with the government around CFIUS requirements and the potential sale, TikTok cited those discussions as reason to block the IEPA order, saying, hey, look, the president here acted prematurely. We've been negotiating the sale. We've been trying to deal with their concerns uh, on national security by this uh, divestiture arrangement, whatever it turns out to be. And now all of a sudden, the president unfairly, without due process, they argue, has cut that process short and jumped right to this um, ban. So very fluid, very complicated situation. Does ByteDance's strategy make sense to be fighting Trump in court while it pursues approval for a sale? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. Because, I mean, the order was... The order, if it had taken effect uh, Sunday night, that would have been crippling uh, to the company. It would have knocked it off with the uh, app stores. It would have prohibited any uh, downloads of updates, including uh, any updates intended to strengthen the privacy protections around the data. Uh, it would have uh, cast uh, advertising um, uh, relationships in the Dow. No, I think that um, in its argument um, to the court on the IEPA order, TikTok made some pretty good arguments that if they were knocked out of the app store, that would have had serious injury to them competitively and operationally. Last time we spoke, there was a possibility a couple of companies were pursuing ByteDance, TikTok, yep. and then we heard that, okay, it seemed like the deal was ready, but the deal that was suggested... According to that deal, ByteDance would still own 80% of the company. If it still has control over the company, if you still have a Chinese entity with control of the company, that doesn't seem to help the things that Cepheus is concerned about. 
that's a good point, and I think many people have basically, you know, criticized the deal on that grounds that, uh, you know, sort of an emperor has no clothes kind of thing, that this deal doesn't actually accomplish what the president said he wanted uh, to do. The administration, I think, and they haven't always been consistent in how they describe this, and they haven't always been clear in what they uh, describe. There's uh, conflicting statements between what the administration says, what the acquiring companies say, what White Man says, what the Chinese government says. Lots of gaps in the description there. I, I guess the administration is claiming, well, 40% of ByteDance's ownership is U.S. venture capital funding. This is this globalized uh, world still. Um, so ByteDance is already partly owned by U.S. venture capital uh, entities. Uh, so you add up Oracle 12.5, Walmart 7.5, the U.S. venture capital 40, and that, I guess, takes you up around uh, 60%. Does China have a say? Could China say, no, we're not going to allow that sale to go through? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as far as I can tell, and it's hard to tell from the administration statements because they're not always very clear, so far the administration has not finally approved the deal, and I think the deal remains in flux. And meanwhile, the Chinese government has not approved the deal, and there's been some commentary in the state press in China criticizing the deal, uh, which is sometimes a, a means of signaling about what the government is likely to do. So the whole deal is, in my opinion, quite tentative, um, quite uncertain, and as you say, even if it goes through, it's not clear that it would really uh, solve uh, the initial problems raised by the government if they really were real problems in the first place in terms of how data flows. TikTok argues that, uh, yes, we collect substantial data. By the way, every other app does too. Uh, but we store it in the United States, and we currently have never yet provided any of it to the Chinese government, and we would resist efforts to uh, demand it. So, so very... Very murky picture, both on the question of what are the terms of the deal and what would the deal really accomplish in terms of the stated national security objectives of the administration. Some people are referring to this as part of the digital coal war. And the Trump administration has forced the sale of an app before, hasn't it? Absolutely. They forced the unwinding of the a, a dating or app grinder by a Chinese company. They forced the unwinding of the sale of a company called Patients Like Me to China. So data has clearly become a focus of tension in terms of foreign investment in the United States. Going way back, the Defense Production Act started out with concerns that, actually Japan at the time, that Japanese companies were buying too much of the American defense production capability. You don't want to have your only tank factory owned by foreign investors. You don't want to have any company that made military equipment owned by foreign investors. That's where this all started 30, 40 years ago. Has Trump been taking an increasingly hard line on China as the election approaches? Yeah, and in fact, they 
TikTok made that argument explicitly in its brief over the weekend, uh, saying that uh, this has relatively little to do with TikTok per se. It actually has relatively little to do with concerns about uh, data or censorship or uh, introduction of propaganda into the uh, TikTok uh, stream, and that it, in fact, is related to anti-China sentiment, which is uh, partly being pumped up in the lead up to the uh, to the election. So lots of motivation swirling around here um, and lots of mixed motives. Mixed motives on the part of the government don't necessarily condemn its actions, but they do contribute to the sense that this is not a well thought out policy. And that feeds into TikTok's argument that this is not uh, consistent with due process. The government needs to be more consistent and more methodical in what it does. The government has responded in, in its brief. It responded and said, no, no, we've been very consistent. The Secretary of Commerce issued a major uh, determination. It's all backed up by fact. But the conflicting and incomplete and somewhat ambiguous statements from the administration have certainly not helped this case. And, and what's happening with WeChat? We don't hear as much about WeChat. Well, uh, a federal court has also issued an order uh, blocking the president's order on WeChat. So the president uh, issued in August uh, a, a very similar, in fact, almost identical order to the uh, AIPA order on TikTok, and on September 19th, a federal district court in California issued a preliminary injunction blocking that order. That court relied explicitly on the First Amendment issues. Uh, The case was brought not by uh, WeChat or its Chinese owner Tencent, but by the WeChat Users Alliance, and they argued, and the court agreed, that uh, WeChat had become a virtual public square, very important words in our sort of First Amendment analysis, public square, uh, and that WeChat was a virtual public square and that it was, for some Chinese Americans and Chinese nationals in the United States, it was really their only effective way of communicating because it was optimized for the Chinese language and there wasn't really quite anything uh, adequate to replace it. Um, so there's the preliminary injunction uh, blocking the administration there. Now, you know, that's first step in both cases. This is the first step. Uh, what will ultimately happen? Uh, will these preliminary uh, injunctions be turned into permanent injunctions? Will they be upheld uh, by the appeals court process? Complete, in my opinion, very hard to predict. Thanks, Jim. That's Jim Dempsey, Executive Director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.